Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'll be speaking with Richard Kenvin, the author of Surfcraft, Design and Culture of Board Writing. Richard Kenvin is director of the Hydrodynamica Project. He writes for the Surfers Journal and is the guest curator of the Surfcraft Exhibition. Richard Kenvin, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Could you give us an introduction to the Menge philosophy and introduce us to its creator, Soetsu Yanagi? Well, the Menge uh, was founded by Yanagi in Japan um, in the early 1900s. Um, he coined the term Menge, which could mean art of, art of the people or everyone's art. Um, he was coming on the heels of the British arts and crafts movement and was sort of applying a Japanese twist and perspective to that movement in the face of industrialism and being afraid that handcrafts would be lost forever and uh, steamrolled by industrialism and mass-produced items that had no soul. So he got really into um, developing this philosophy that would preserve that and also would help to make better mass-produced items as well at the same time having a symbiotic relationship between handcraftsmanship and production items. That's what it, was, what it evolved into. Um, but I became familiar with um, Yanagi by reading his book, The Unknown Craftsman, which was compiled by Bernard Leach um, in the late 60s and early 70s. And I, I bought that book at the Minge Museum here in San Diego about 10 years ago and read it. And... Um, I found that what he was saying really applied to uh, this research that I was doing into surfboards because the boards I was I was looking at and um, exploring were all made over 50 years ago and none of them were signed. They fit perfectly within the sort of highest level of Minge craft, which is an unsigned functional object that was made by somebody to be used. And the surfboards that I was looking into really fit into that, so that's how it that's how it struck me, and how I learned about about uh, Inagi's philosophy. So, where did the surfboards you were looking at come from? North America or Hawaii? There's a definite point in surf culture, generally around the late 1950s to early 60s, when demand kind of dictated that surfboards be produced industrially. Well, initially, I was looking at boards. Um, called Fishboards, which developed here in San Diego in the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, due to the sort of um, counterculture um, mentality and uh, ethics of Steve Liss and his friends, who were the uh, teenagers at the time that developed that, that board, um, they had no branding or anything like that. They were really beautiful and also really functional. So those boards initially fell within the category, but in, in looking into the fish board, it brought me further back in time to Bob Simmons, who died at Wingancy, where I grew up surfing. Uh, Simmons died there in a surfing accident in 1954. And Simmons developed these boards called hydrodynamic planing holes between 1947 and 1954. So 
I got to those boards, and they were very much within the category of Minga as well, all completely unsigned. You would never know who made them unless you knew uh, knew about Simmons, etc. And then from there, there's these connections between both the Fish and the Simmons board to much older boards. This is from a design perspective, and there's also some direct connections to much older Hawaiian boards, um, boards like the Kaipo and the Alaya and other boards like that. And so I was able to go to Oahu and go to the Bishop Museum and where they house the collection of uh, traditional Hawaiian boards, which are all very, um, that's sort of the Rosetta Stone and, and uh, Brown Zero for surf design are, are the boards that they have housed there at the Bishop. All of those designs, um, I started sort of cross-referencing them between the boards that I'd grown up riding, which were not really um, in a historical context in the mainstream ever really connect, you know, connected to these other boards. Um, and I began seeing how these older boards were so much a part of what was making uh, the quote-unquote modern conventional board function. In fact, sometimes it felt like the older, more obscure designs functioned in better and more pure and dynamic ways than the conventional stuff. So that was another thing that made it very interesting to explore these old old boards. You know, people who visit Waikiki Beach in Honolulu might have seen the statue of Duke Kahanamoku, the man considered the spiritual father of modern surfing. I always thought it was great that not only was he a great surfer, but he introduced surfing to Australia by building his own board when he was there. Yeah, well, that board is that Duke built um, is still housed down there. I think it's uh, down in, in Sydney. Um, and yeah, it's a sort of touchstone for Australian surf culture. And um, yeah, Duke was the one and only just ambassador, uh, world-class, class athlete, uh, Olympic champion uh, in swimming, um, and just sort of, yeah, just spread surfing in such a dynamic and appealing way, I think, to so many, many people um, in California. I have a photo of Duke um, tandem surfing at Del Mar Beach, which is near where I live, up on my wall, and um yeah, Duke, um, I mean, just can't really say enough about what he did as far as spreading and popularizing surfing during his lifetime. You mentioned the name Bob Simmons in one of your earlier answers, and he's definitely one of the main designers in your book. Why is he so important to the history of surfboard design? Simmons and his brother, Edward Dewey Simmons, uh, you know, they both went to Caltech, and uh, Edward was was Bob's older brother, and he invented the electric strain gauge um, while at Caltech in 1938, which that strain gauge is still in use, and it did a lot for engineering and being able to um, measure and quantify uh, structural stress, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I mean, just the, Edward didn't serve for anything. Bob did. Um, but what Simmons did from a design standpoint was that he, he in his mind, he mathematically calculated what was going on when a 
a person's weight and mass, a human body was was riding on a surfboard, and he had an idea of how to do it um, differently, which was what the rails were doing, the edge of the board as it was interacting with the water, and where a, a fin could come in to work with that rail and get it to be controlled while while the rail lifted. And then he also had access because of his his injury, he was. His, he was hit by a car and it really almost ruined his left arm. Uh, so he was ineligible to go into uh, war during World War II. So he stayed home and other some of his peers at that early time of surfing, this was in Los Angeles and Malibu during that time during World War II, all had to serve in the war and, and went off to war. And Simmons stayed home and was able to evolve these designs. And he also had access to these new materials, fiberglass, balsa, balsa wood, and then later um, foam from Dow Chemical, actually. And that whole combination of things really, um, through Simmons, developed the prototype for the modern board that everybody's riding today. It's the roots of the board that uh, Kelly Slater rides really comes very, very much from from what Bob Simmons was doing back in the late 40s and early 1950s. And we found today that um, by sort of plugging in Simmons's formula and what he was doing into the sort of modern trial and error board, that we're getting boards that work better than as far as a high performance board that are far more efficient can be ridden much shorter and and do things that we've always wanted surfboards to do i'm talking about surfboards with fins that ride off the rails um and that's because of things that simmons had defined way back in the 40s he had done it on a on a much bigger scale his boards were more monolithic although he did make some short boards but as far as his his um ability to take, you know, an activity surfing and sort of define it in mathematical terms and begin applying that to boards at the time when he did it is really one of those statements of true um, genius. And then coupled with his brother, who was an extremely eccentric genius as well, um, coming from the same family is just a really unique thing. You know, the Simmons story in my mind is one of those great American stories. Here's a guy working on something he absolutely loves in a culture which kind of looked down on surfing, mainly because when Simmons was working, there weren't too many surfers. Well, yeah, in Simmons' day, there were so few surfers. I mean, I just found an old uh, 1963 surf guide at a, at a friend's house um, that talked about Simmons. There were, so this surf guide said there were estimated 1,500 surfers in Southern California in 1950. Um, that might even be a little high. Um, but Simmons sort of provided the archetype for what was later to become this sort of rebellious outlaw of punk rock, beatnik personality. But I think he was not, uh, he was one of those people from what I can tell that he was, 
he didn't have a girlfriend ever. He was not going to parties, not going to keggers. He was whatever. He was just doing his own thing. And what his thing was, was designing surfboards and surfing them. So what about today? Are there still people out there making their own boards, working on their craft, following to some degree the precepts outlined by the Mingay movement? Yeah, actually, I think I think there are lots and lots of people um, right now that are making boards out of all sorts of different materials at home, in their garages, or wherever, just to make them and ride them themselves. And on, on the and I think that goes on everywhere now. It's sort of almost a, a renaissance around the world of people doing that. Um, and uh, on the other hand, I think that, that uh, the mass production of surfboards and everything continues to grow and get more and more sophisticated, and um, surfing does get bigger and bigger. The performance level of the professional surfers gets higher and higher. The sophistication and um, professional aspects of like the um, webcasts and uh, world tour contests, et cetera, et cetera, continues to just get better and better and better. Um, so it's an interesting time uh, in surfing. But I think that uh, the craft of building boards and experimenting is really alive and, and well right now. And I think I think boards like Steve Liss's Fish and, and people becoming more aware of Bob Simmons and the work that um, Tom Pohaku Stone, who, who made some boards that are in the exhibit and is really the but he's a native Hawaiian, and he's really the the expert in, on uh, traditional Hawaiian surf, surfing, I think, today. But because of, the, of all of uh, the work that those guys have done, that that really translates into an inspiration for, you know, people that are just regular surfers and want to make stuff at home and want to experience new different boards and want to feel connected to, to history, and they, they make their own stuff, and they really enjoy it. So how long will the surfboard exhibition be running at the Menge International Museum in San Diego? Uh, it runs till January 11th, 2015. So any listeners in the Southern California area, go on down to Balboa Park in San Diego and see the boards for yourselves. Richard Kenvin, the author of Surfcraft, Design and Culture of Board Writing, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. My pleasure, Chris. For more information on this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are, at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2014, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.